0: William Burton and Barry Loveland, authors of Out in Central Pennsylvania.
1: Our guests today are William Burton and Barry Loveland, and they are the authors of this book, Out in Central Pennsylvania, The History of an LGBTQ Community. Um, William Burton, we'll start with you. Uh, how did this book come about?
2: Well, it came about... Uh... Quite by accident, the way I I moved to Philadelphia in 2015, and um, I had just uh, finished my master's degree at UMass Boston, and uh, when I got to Philadelphia, I kind of wanted to use that, use my master's, and because uh, I'd written it, uh, my master's thesis on gay history, and I I wanted to continue doing, it. and so I looked around at organizations that were doing something regarding gay history. And I came upon the LGBT history project in central Pennsylvania. And uh, I saw that Barry was uh, the director and founder of it. So I contacted Barry. And I went up to Harrisburg and met with Barry to find out what he was doing. He was collecting these oral histories and documenting, you know, gay lives and gay people in, in central Pennsylvania. And Barry uh handed me a stack of about 50 of these oral histories that he had collected and I took them home and I read them and frankly, I was mesmerized and I was shocked and I just couldn't believe the stories that I was reading. The stories about discrimination, harassment, um, how some of these networks and organizations were formed and I realized that you know, my entire life i had been living in a bubble that, um, That I lived in cities like Houston and Boston, and and then now Philadelphia, where I didn't have to deal with some of the things that the people in central Pennsylvania had been living. I'd always been living in non-urban. I mean, in large urban cities that had gay neighborhoods that had organizations built in. I could walk out the door, and I was surrounded by other gay people. I could easily find and access gay organizations, they were medical facilities. Um, I just never stopped to think about not having any of those amenities around me. What would life would be like? And um, I said to Barry, I said, this, this would make a terrific book. I said, but the problem would be finding a publisher. Um, and as serendipity would have it, you know, Barry had written an article about a year prior to that about what he was doing at the History Project. And uh, an editor, uh, Captain Yarner at Penn State, had seen uh, this article. And she had contacted Barry and said, We saw what you were doing. We think this possibly could be great material for a book. And would you or anybody on your staff be willing to work with us to develop a book? Well, hello. I raised my hand immediately you know, I'd be willing to do that. And so um, that's how the whole thing came about. And so I then spent like the next uh, nine months working with Penn State, developing the book proposal, which then led to a contract. And that's kind of how the whole thing came
1: about. And Barry, how long have you been involved in gathering this information?
0: Well, we started the history project in 2012, so it's been about eight years, and um, we've been working on uh, gathering oral history interviews with people. um, About 150 to date, Um, and we've also collected a lot of uh, archival material as well from people who had uh, things in their closets, and their attics, and basements, and things like that. They uh, volunteered to donate to the project. and it, it's a host of material from historical photos to uh, personal papers, to newsletters, organizations, and uh, t-shirts and all sorts of artifacts as well. So it's um, about a hundred linear feet of material that we've collected to date. And um, we, we are working, we've been working with the um, uh, Dickinson College Archives and they uh, serve as the repository for the whole collection.
1: And you say central pennsylvania what, what's the footprint what, what area of the state did you look at
0: yeah well um, initially you know we thought we would look at um sort of the the lgbt center in central pennsylvania has sort of a service area of several counties of, of south central pa um, so we we thought we would kind of restrict our efforts to that but then we we realized that a lot of these stories um Interrelated with, with what was going on in other parts of the state that were uh, more of the rural parts of the uh, Commonwealth. And so um, we began expanding that territory a bit and we've collected material from uh, the north central part of the state. Um, we even have some up in the Scranton, Wilkes-Barre area and over into Allentown and, and Bethlehem area. So uh, it really has grown in, um, in scope in a way. Um, although the book concentrates mostly on, uh, the south central part of the state because that's the, per- the, the largest part of our collection, uh, has, uh, has a lot of material from that part of the state, but, you
1: did, did you, know, you, we, did you find that the stories differed much from, from someone who lived in Harrisburg or Lancaster or York versus someone who lived in say the Northern, the very rural parts of the state?
0: well um not a lot actually it's it's quite striking that um you know a, a, a lot of um similar similarities between s- the small cities and towns in Pennsylvania in terms of the um, stories that we we got on on uh, people's uh, discrimination that they faced um, the difficulties coming out um, the difficulties in trying to Achieve local um, protections from, from local through local ordinances. Um, a lot of these stories um, were similar and resonated.
1: Did the way governments treated the issue vary much from from the the small cities like Harrisburg, Lancaster, York versus the rural areas?
2: Well, I think the interesting part was when you started to, to when we looked at uh, the anti discrimination. Uh, as they pursued the anti-discrimination ordinances, whether it be you know, Harrisburg, Lancaster, York, uh, what was very similar were the arguments against the passage of these orders, and the arguments were all very similar. They all were with uh, that they were going to condone this immoral behavior and that they were all walking into Satan's hands. And those arguments really didn't vary from city to city. And, and, and it was really kind of... Uh, so the arguments you heard all across the nation, uh, whether it be in Colorado when they were fighting that amendment, and, um, those big battles that were taking place, or they to Bryant, per se, so that, that was what all gay people were facing on their fight for civil rights, um, that, that all the LGBT community had to hone their arguments against the religious rights. So that was kind of the same drumbeat that was heard in non-urban areas as it was heard in large urban areas.
1: But well, Bill, when you had all these oral histories to work with, how did you turn that into a, a narrative?
2: Well, so that was that was the challenge. When we first started doing the book proposal and I was thinking, how do I write this? Do I write it in chapters of, okay, we'll do a chapter on discrimination, we'll do a chapter on harassment. And Catherine at Penn State said, why don't you do it by decades? And that's when it really all fell into place. So, um, we started kind of in the 1960s and then moved forward. And that's when I sat down sat down with, sat down with Barry and said, okay, let's look at the 60s, 70s and 80s. And what are the stories that we need to tell? And then it, it all really fell into place perfectly. Because when you looked at the 70s, you know, what happened then? Um, what organizations formed? Who were the key people? Who were the key players? What stories have to be told, and suddenly it was like easy to pull out what needed to be told, and uh, it was amazing how I found the books. And then um, after read some of the, after read some the most of the chapters, we had a profile section where we highlighted certain individual stories that were kind of appropriate to the chapter, and some of those profiles centered on discrimination, some of them on harassment. Some were uplifting, some were like rather shocking and, you can say depressing, but they were appropriate to the chapters as the decades moved
1: on. Bill, how did you identify the people you wanted to do the oral histories with?
2: Um, it was dependent upon the story that, that, that what was going on. Um, like in the when we were talking about, like when we were talking the chapter of the fighting, the, the chapter called battles, we're talking about Harrisburg, Lancaster, and New York. Um there are certain key players that were instrumental in those battles. Uh, so we wanted to talk to them. In the profile section, I profiled a woman, Nancy Pound, uh who opened who was a key player in the Lancaster battle for their ordinance. And um, she also at that time opened uh, a bookstore, a gay bookstore in, in downtown Lancaster on Main Street. And this was in the nineties when nationwide, there was a growing awareness of, of the gay, of the gay movement and kind of a growing acceptance, both in the theater and the arts and in politics of Clinton. Um, and so I was living in Boston at the time and we had three gay bookstores no one gave a thought. Well, in Lancaster, I think because of Nancy's notoriety, uh, and taking the, the lead and fighting for the ordinance, um, when she started opening the bookstore, she started getting threats, uh, about the bookstore, and eventually it was firebombed, it was firebombed twice. Uh, and the threats, you know, she was under such fear that who was going to get hurt. Was she going to get murdered? Was she going to get killed? Uh, that she eventually had to close her bookstore. Well, I said Barry, I, I want to interview Nancy. So, you know, I interviewed Nancy at her home and 30 years after the fact of this, uh, her bookstore being firebombed and closing, um, when she would be telling the story, tears came to her. And you know, I said to, my, I said, I owe an obligation to this woman to tell her story right, because the pain thirty years later was still very, very real. So there's you know, things like that as, as we went through and started tracing what had to be told. You know, certain stories became evident, and certain people can you have to tell their story, you have to talk about it.
1: Barry, what what was going on in the in the gay movement when you came of age?
0: Well, um, I, I was actually not here when I sort of came of age. Um, I, uh, I came out when I was in uh, college at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute up in New York. And um, it was a time where uh, there were very few organizations and very few resources uh, around. It was um, 1977 um, when I came out. Um, but in in Albany, New York, which was close to where I was going to school, um, they had a uh, gay center, uh, gay community center. It was one of the first, one of the earliest um, in the um, uh, state and, and was one of the um, places that you could go to not only meet some people, but also find out, um, you know, where Uh, resources were, gay bars, for example, uh, to socialize and uh, how to to, uh, navigate sort of the uh, civil rights issues of of the time. And so um, that was kind of my coming out process going there and also uh, socializing in some of the bars in Albany. Uh, But then uh, in 1983, I moved to Pennsylvania um, after graduate school and, and another position uh, down south that I took for a few years but uh, I moved uh, moved to Harrisburg in 1983 um, and uh, fortunately there was a quite a bit going on in Harrisburg at that point um, in fact I, I was um, wanted to make sure that I um, was going to be protected in my job before I decided to move because I was coming from Montgomery, Alabama at that time, and there were absolutely no protections uh, in the state of Alabama for um, people who were uh, gay uh, or lesbian. So uh, at that point, um, I checked with uh, the LGBT Center, or not the center, the switchboard, gay and lesbian switchboard of Harrisburg was in existence um, at that point, uh, actually started in 1975, so uh i called the switchboard up and said i was thinking of moving there for a job and they told me about all the resources and all the protections available and and so forth they had just passed the local ordinance in harrisburg Um, but also years before that in 1975 governor schaap um, uh, issued an uh, executive order protecting all state employees uh, based on sexual orientation that was the first such order of any state in the country. Um, and uh, so it was um, important to me to know that before I decided to take the position working for the state of uh, Pennsylvania.
2: And that's a story we really wanted to, um, not very sorry, but I mean about uh, Milton Schaff, Governor Milton Schaff, yeah. and we really wanted to get out in the book um, because he's kind of like one of the unsung heroes of the gay and lesbian movement, uh, because of his executive order. That was the first anywhere in the country of any anti-discrimination ordinance, uh, protecting gays and lesbians anywhere in the country. And nobody knows about it. I didn't know about it. Um. So, and it happened here in Pennsylvania. And, and the shocking thing is that Pennsylvania still does not have a Ordinance protecting gays and lesbians. Um, and 64% of the state uh, towns and uh, communities in the state are still not protected. Only 34% of the state has protections protecting LGBT people. And those are passed locally. Um, so um, it's kind of amazing that the state has not come to the forefront yet. Maybe they will, but you, you- it's still.
1: You say in your, you say in your book that in it was in 1976 that Governor Shap uh, declared uh, Gay Pride Week.
0: That's yes. right. Yeah, um, he, he issued a Gay Pride Week um, uh, executive order and um, immediately got a lot of pushback from the state legislature. Um, there was a, a number of. Um, uh, legislators who objected to this idea of celebrating um, gay pride. Um, they uh, uh, thought that the governor went too far. And so they started um, uh, proposing some legislation um, which would restrict um, gay people from a lot of professions. Um, and so that legislation went through and was passed and, and the governor vetoed it um, but uh, it was a, a a little bit of a tense uh, position for governor shaft to be uh, putting himself out there and supporting gay rights um, and um, you know in 1976 he also created the first um, uh, LGBT um, uh, organization that was or, or Part of state government um, that was an official uh, part of state government uh, called the uh, Pennsylvania Council for Sexual Minorities. This was the first um, official governmental body anywhere in the country that uh, was designed to provide um, uh, improvements to public policy for LGBT people, LGBTQ people. and so his um, contributions to uh, LGBTQ history and, and civil rights are pretty amazing. He was way ahead of his time, I think.
1: Did did the council on sexual minorities continue after the Shap administration? What happened to it? it
0: did, yeah, it did. Uh, it continued uh, through the Thornberg administration, if you can believe that uh, Thornberg was a Republican. Um, and so it was um, pretty amazing that uh, Thornberg decided to reappoint the council and and maintain the council through his administration. And they made a lot of very significant um, contributions to public policy. Uh, That was the time of the AIDS crisis. Um, And at that point, um, Pennsylvania was um, starting to get hit pretty hard from um, the number of AIDS cases. And um, the council uh, helped put into place a lot of important public policy related to AIDS through training and um, drug distribution um, for AZT and all sorts of programs that became the model for a lot of other states. So it was a pretty, uh, pretty important period of time for the council.
1: Does it still exist? Yeah,
0: because yeah, council was a little bit of a dip after that, and then when the AIDS crisis
2: hit, it kind of uh, the council took on a lot more importance because of the AIDS crisis.
0: Yeah, the the council ceased to exist after um, Thornburg. um, uh, Governor Casey, when he came in, he did not reappoint the council. Um, However, the current um, governor has actually appointed a similar council, um, a little bit different title and a little bit different uh, focus, but um, it certainly um, has made a, a come full circle and, and brought back some of the important Um, function of um, advising state government.
1: Bill, uh, a lot of your chapters start with a a reference to a Stonewall event. For people who don't know, can you refresh our memories on what Stonewall was?
2: Well, Stonewall is actually the defining, is the galvanizing force in the the gay community. There certainly were um, protests that happened in New York City uh, when the police raided the Stonewall bar uh, and at that point, um, the, gay, the gay community had, had enough and resisted and, and fought back. And the three or four preceding nights after that, there were like two or 3,000 people in uh, Sheridan Square protesting and fighting the police um, against the harassment against the gay community. But, um, and that. Riot took on national significance. Um, certainly before Stonewall, there were outbursts against uh, police harassment and crackdowns against the community. Uh, we documented what happened in the 60s in Harrisburg when the police were trying to crack down around the uh, State Street area, arresting uh, men for uh, cruising around. Uh, the state street area and arresting them, and they would arrest them, their they would appear in the paper. And they were fined and given terms in jail. Uh, the devastating things, their names and addresses were published in, in the local paper. Uh, but there were different instances in L.A. I put the in the book, L.A. Philadelphia, uh, Chicago, where there were where the gays uh, and lesbians fought back against the police, but there was no, none of these, uh, um, um, fire riots or whatever protests against police actually galvanized the entire gay and lesbian community, you know, nationwide. But when Stonewall happened, uh, it just took fire. I mean, it just took fire nationwide and it just galvanized the entire gay community like enough is enough. And out of that, it spun uh, a couple uh, gay activist alliances, the gay activist alliance and the Gay Liberation Front uh, to fight for anti-discrimination ordinances and gay civil rights. Uh, and so that was kind of the beginning of the gay liberation movement. And so uh, you begin to see across the country, uh mainly in large cities, this fight for gay li- gay gay rights to take hold. Uh that eventually made its way into central Pennsylvania. And uh, we started documenting, the book documents some of these small Little groups that would form uh, to stay informed about how can we fight, you know, to get our rights. Well, the first step is coming up, which is a very hard thing to do. Uh, to say that you're gay or lesbian and let people know about it. And um, some of these groups were, you know, fighting for that, but also the option of that was, they also became social outlets where other gay people can meet other gay people and expand their communities um, and expand their networks. And that was one of the key components of how the gay community formed in central Pennsylvania.
1: Was there a defining moment in Pennsylvania like like Stonewall, some Pennsylvania equivalent of it?
2: No, I think um, that was the point I wanted to document in why this book was important. Is because when you think about gay communities, the natural inclinations you think about large urban areas, like New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, Boston, Los Angeles, San Francisco, you don't think about a gay community in a non-urban area. And so what I found intriguing, because I was one of those that led to a large urban area uh, as a young man, was how does a gay community form in a non-urban area? where there are no gay neighborhoods. There are no laws to protect you. There's no social organization. So to me, it was fascinating to see how this gay community formed and developed a social network and formed their community and formed these these, these ties that bind and built their community without these other support systems, especially in a conservative area. Because in these large urban areas, generally the the community around it is generally progressive, and would allow the gay community to kind of survive. Uh, That's not to say everybody in a large urban area is liberal and progressive, because we know the case. But it allows the gay community to survive and go kind of unmolested for the most part. So um, that's why. We wanted to write this book to make sure that that there that defines how gay communities can form and develop in a non urban area. Now, there are books that have been written about rural areas, but the books that have been written, if you look at them, they basically talk about race, class, religion, or the strictly coming out stories. They're not really centered around how the community in a rural area develops in the community itself. And that in central Pennsylvania is about the community
0: and how it develops.
1: Bill if I could add oh, yeah, if go ahead. I could just add go to ahead.
0: that a little bit. Um, the, uh, It was interesting that Governor Shap in a way um pulled together the community in central Pennsylvania because um a lot of people were attending his um his task force meetings leading up up to forming the Pennsylvania Council uh, for sexual minorities. And uh, a lot of the people from the rural areas had never met each other. And it was really an opportunity for them to get together at these meetings. And they would uh, start caucusing then after after the formal meetings and start uh, informally talking about ways that they could work together. And so a lot of the the representatives from these various small groups from around various cities and towns in Pennsylvania, formed a group called the uh, Pennsylvania Rural Gay Caucus. And the caucus was, was a, a way for all of these small groups to come together and work on projects that were too big for any one of them to uh, take on themselves. So things like the, um, the first um, um, Gay Education Day, which was a lobbying effort for state government. Um, they put that together um, in 1976 Um, to lobby the legislature for civil rights protections. Um, That was the first time that had been done in the state. Um, They also organized the first gay conference in the state and they held a series of gay conferences every year for several years um, as a way to educate uh, the community about various issues involving uh, LGBT uh, rights and uh, protections and other issues. and um, as a way to also pull the community together uh, to uh, start uh, helping each other work through all these different issues. So um, that was a a pretty amazing uh, story as well in the book.
1: Well, let me ask you both the same question. Uh, Why should a straight person read this book?
2: (laughs) Well, it's about, the development of human rights and how a community developed. It's about, it's American history. It's like, it's American study. Um, it's like if you went to university and you're gonna major in American studies, you wanna know about different communities and how different things develop. And um, that's why I would, that could be a, a, one of the books to read if you were in American study. Uh, so it's like, why be blind to the fact of, how anything developed and also, uh, the discrimination that goes on and what's behind it. Uh, it's an eye opening. Um, why sit around in ignorance when you can see what, what mankind does to mankind. So, and some of the filthy and some of the faulty reasoning, uh, it's a check on yourself. I think. Um, it's like anything you want to be informed. It's like why well, want to read a, why would anybody want to read a book about the transgender experience um, and what one goes through. I I did a book review on a, uh, a book uh, called, you know, uh, once a girl, always a boy, um, and it was written from the mother's perspective about her her. Her son, who was born a girl, and that transition that her son went through from a girl to a boy. And um, to me, it was an eye opener to what the parents go through, to what the child goes through. Uh, It's a deep emotional uh, awakening to understand. What both parties go through, um, and increase my understanding of the situation. So I'd recommend that book too. you know it's like people need to know But sometimes we're walking around in ignorance and we don't know what's going on, we don't understand things. And I think it's a reason to understand why we should read and and find out. What went on? What's going on? And the things that are behind it.
1: Um, Barry, same question. Yeah, I would say that um, today
0: it's it, it's hard to find any person who isn't touched in some way by uh, the gay and lesbian, the LGBTQ community. Um, <clears throat> that if, that if there's someone that they know, or that is a member of their family, maybe a son or a daughter. Um, you know, I think it's it's pretty. Um, amazing today. People are much more comfortable coming out at an early age. So it's much more likely that uh, any family or any person is going to know um, or have a person in their family who is LGBTQ. And to know that history, I think it's important because when, um, when a young person comes out today, they have no concept of what it was like you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago to have come out then as opposed to today. And they take for granted a lot of protections and gains that have been made for the community. Um, You know, people who come out um, in a heterosexual family uh, don't have um, a grandparent to tell stories about the past, about the LGBTQ past. They have stories about their own family to be sure but they don't have that history of the community of um, uh, that person you know that's coming into so i think it's important that that um, straight people have an understanding because they they know people who are lgbtq
1: bill i want to ask you something you you referred to the the transsexual community, and you say in here, or the transgender community, sorry, the transgender community, and you say they have sustained much discrimination even from within the LGBTQ community at large. Can you talk a little bit about that, about when the T was added to LGB and and what kind of discrimination they felt within the community?
2: Yeah, because I think uh, that happened uh, I think during the march on Washington back in nine 19- around the 2000 time period, um, because I think they were basically misunderstood. Um, they, as a community, you know, because like they said, they were transsexuals, uh, people found as drag queens, they didn't quite understand it. Um, and so it wasn't until the community itself galvanized and made this movement uh, to be recognized. You know, it was always, you know, first the gay, it, it, the acronym was, was gay and it was gay and lesbian, and lesbian and gay and bisexual was added. And then finally the recognition of the transgender community and what it was. And, um, and I think a lot of it was, uh, I think a lot of gays and lesbians don't really understand uh, what it means to be transgender and not to be comfortable with your own gender identity that you really are a woman inside and trapped in a man's body or you are a man inside trapped in a woman's body. And you don't look like looking at yourself. It's just not what you are um and to gain acceptance like that because like the minute you come before the minute you came out you could lose your family um you know your income uh the matter of getting your driver's license changed uh, uh, was virtually impossible uh, And so um, not only was there, discrimination and harassment on by the heterosexual community it was a great misunderstanding within the gay and lesbian community about it because people just didn't understand it and didn't get it so I think the the transgender community had to go through educating knowing only their own families in the world but also the gay and lesbian community about what it really meant to be transgender and to gain acceptance and I think that it made uh, tremendous um uh, on what it is uh, to be that way. Uh, it was an eye opener for me to interview uh, some of these people. Um, I needed an education, <laughs> and uh, you know, it just a, just, sometimes it's afraid to ask questions. I don't want to go too deep or to be, to be too personal. But I asked if I could ask, and they said, "Ask away," and they were very forthcoming, and um, and it's a real education process, and uh, I feel enriched by it now that I have a better understanding of um, what they've gone through and what gender dysphoria is, and how. Um, terrible it can be until you can rectify.
1: Barry, can you, talk, changing subject a little bit, but Barry, can you talk about the, the role of women in the LGBTQ community and and were women involved as activists in the beginning or was it predominantly a male-oriented movement in the beginning?
0: Sure. Um, yeah, there were a lot of um, uh, important activists from the women's community uh, early on. Um, I can think of Barbara. Giddings in, in Philadelphia, of course, who really was someone who um, was really important in the movement uh, from the 1960s on. Uh, but here in central Pennsylvania, we had our own um, activists as well. Uh, Mary Nana Caro from Harrisburg, who was very active in pushing for the uh, ordinance in um, Harrisburg in 1983. Uh, she became the um, uh, president of the National Organization for Women's uh, Pennsylvania Chapter um, and um, she was she worked very hard in um, civil rights protections throughout the state uh, through her association with NOW and also she was uh, a staff person with the uh, State Human Relations Commission. Um, so um, she also worked considerably with the Pennsylvania Rural Gay Caucus. Uh, was an important uh, figure in that uh, organization as well. Um, And there were many others uh, too uh, that uh, were active in the um, the caucus, were active in the council um, that we talked about and um, uh, were active in various organizations throughout Central PA and Eastern PA, North Central part of the state. So um, yeah, yeah, very active uh, uh, movement. there was a very active women's music movement. Um, Bobby Carmichael, uh, we talk about in the book as well, who uh, was really one of the founding um, people in, in Central PA of uh, women's music, um, and uh, was very important to uh, the lesbian community in Central PA. Um, and there was a um, an organization in North Central Pennsylvania called the the Lesbian Connection uh, at State College, uh, which was a group of, of women who would get together and using a phone tree would let each other know about events going on. And then Lorraine Kajawa in uh, Harrisburg um, started the Lavender Letter, which was a important publication that uh, let uh, women, Central PA, lesbian women, know about activities and organizations and events going on. Um, and that uh, that uh, newsletter lasted for many, many years, um, right up until uh, after 2000. Um, and started in 19, 1980s, early 80s. And was
1: the was the movement integrated from the beginning? Were African African Americans involved in it? And was there any kind of coordination between the the civil rights movement and the LGBTQ movement?
0: Um, I would say that. Um, there was integration um, in central PA. There weren't as far as we've been able to tell um, separate bars or separate organizations that African-Americans or people of color um, were involved with. Um, They're pretty integrated into um, the, the organizations um, in general. Um, it was a small participation though um, from what we could find it, it was a, a, not a huge number of people, and we had trouble finding um, people of color to tell their stories for the LGBT Center's History Project, as well as for the book. Um, but there were a few, and a uh, few very important uh, people were involved. Uh, Dr. Eric Selvey, for example, in Harrisburg, um, is someone who was involved very early uh, in the 80s with um organizations, um, including the uh, drag troupe, um, uh, Lily White & Company, that um, went through uh, and did performances throughout central Pennsylvania, Um, and uh, they raised money for AIDS organizations and other LGBTQ organizations. Um, He was on the board of that group. Uh, He was also the first a gay man who was appointed chair of the human relations commission in the city of Harrisburg. So um, and he also uh, organized several of the gay pride celebrations in Harrisburg and uh, also had a publication, a gay publication that he did in the 90s. So um, there are people um, of color who had made uh, some important contributions here.
1: And Bill. I think there's, yeah, there's go ahead.
2: Been, um, even the national level. There's not been much, uh, there's not been much interplay between, you know, uh, the national gay organizations and, uh, uh, like the NAACP. What really helped was when the NAACP uh, endorsed uh, the March on Washington back in around the 2002. They endorsed that march. Uh, that was the first big, um, uh, and first big endorsement that helped you know get um, one of the LGBT, the LGBT movement at the time. So there hasn't been an active, I don't think an active working together between the two uh, groups but um, they endorse each other back and forth uh, I think and support each other. Um, I wouldn't say there's an active involvement, but I think there's a mutual, Admiration society, and youth support system going on.
1: Can you talk about a little bit about some of the institutions and how they worked with or against the LGBTQ movement? Like, the, like the churches. When, when you deal with churches, where'd you find receptivity and where'd you find opposition?
2: Um, again, like when I was researching the ordinances. Um, uh, most of the organizations that thought it were religious organizations. Uh, the ones that were supportive, um, there was you know, basically like Dignity the Metropolitan Community Church, uh, Dignity Central uh, were writing supportive letters. Um, uh, the Catholic at uh, dignity central there was a Catholic priest that helped run that. Uh, I'm glad Father, what was his name? My father. Father Saudi. Father, yeah. <laughs> Blacking am blanking out. Uh, he wrote a letter uh, in support of the ordinances. Uh, the Catholic Church did not, um, uh, obviously did not actively support it. So there wasn't really one um, organized church that was supporting the, you know, the gay passage of ordinances.
0: That's, that's been changing over time. Now, um, the uh, central Pennsylvania region has a tremendous number of um, churches that um, have outreach to the LGBTQ yeah, community. Yeah, that's changed over time. Yeah, that's changed drastically over time. Um, and uh, now if you go to a gay pride event in central Pennsylvania, you'll see dozens of booths from uh, congregations of various denominations, um, reaching out to the community. Yeah, that's one thing that we noted, speaking of the gay
2: pride, that, um, you know, Stonewall happened in 1969, and the first gay pride parade was held a year later in New York, and I think Chicago, and Los Angeles, and soon, you know, in cities and towns across the, the country and in, and in Europe, they were holding gay pride parades. Uh Philadelphia, I mean, South Pennsylvania didn't hold their first one until like 14 years later. And uh they never called it never the word gay never entered in, in, into it. Uh, um, it was called an open air festival. They never because of the fear of backlash, And they didn't want any publicity because of the fear of backlash in Central Pennsylvania, and when they did hold it, it was in the middle of 1984, I think, and the question was held. uh, At that point in time in the large cities, those gay pride parades were, you know, protesting, you know, about the AIDS, you know, the AIDS problem, fighting for drugs, gays in the military. They were at that point little squeaks about, you know, domestic partnership and gay marriage. They were becoming kind of political at that time, But in Central Pennsylvania, it didn't take on that tone. It took on a a tone of coming together and celebration of who we are. And that tone of that same tone in Central Pennsylvania stayed the same all the way through the 80s and through the 90s. They never, gay pride never, in Central PA, never really became a political football or animal. It was always a celebration of pride and coming together. Well, in the larger the areas, they became political footballs. Soon mayors and governors were walking in these gay pride parades. It kind of stayed more quiet in central Pennsylvania. Eventually they did change the name for gay unless you know uh gay for gay did enter into the title. Um I'm forgetting the year. <laughs> Gotta go back and look at my book.
0: Nineteen ninety two. Nineteen
2: ninety two. And so, uh, and now there's a little more politics in and into it, you know, in the 20th century, but it's still nothing like the bigger of area.
1: Barry, I wanna ask you, and I guess I should ask both of you, a, a big part of your book is about the AIDS crisis. and Can you talk a little bit about when that uh, first appeared and what it, what effect it had on the gay community?
2: Well, it happened, a couple of, you know, the AIDS thing first kind of happened uh, in 1981, 82, when it first started, cases first started showing up. And, um, I think the first AIDS cases in Central PA was in 83, 84, when the first person died. Um, to give you a perspective of it, by 1990, uh, there were 15,000 cases of, uh, of AIDS in Pennsylvania. And in central PA, there was 1700. So now the bulk of those cases in Pennsylvania were in Philadelphia and some in Pittsburgh. Uh, but there were cases in central PA. And, um, when we looked at we just I just document the first early years of the AIDS crisis. We didn't go through all of it. Just the first, you know, five or six years of what happened. And the community did respond. Um, with uh, the organization called Scan Sale, Central AIDS Assistant Network, and uh, <clears throat> they started raising money to help people get, you know, food and housing and care, and wheelchairs. Uh, we had a hospice that developed in York, uh, that Joe Uthema developed, uh, that was one of the best hospices anywhere in the nation. People There was an organization in New York that developed same on the same thing that happened was similar, very similar to scan. Uh, the community pulled together like they were doing elsewhere to help these AIDS victims and to take care of them. There was still, you know, discrimination going on. Doctors were afraid to, to, to treat people. Uh, the AIDS the first aid organizers were in fact, the ones distributing information to doctors on how to treat it, how to treat the disease, getting education out to schools and, uh, you know, teachers and organizations on what the disease is, how to handle it, uh, safe sex as the information came in. They were turning that right around and trying to get it out in the community and going out handing out Know, condoms and you know, in, information handbooks. Uh, it was a call to arms, just like it was in the big cities, but it was done in a very locally small base. And it was just, uh, they had to turn on them and look to themselves and how are we going to deal with it? Because there was no help coming from anyone, just like it was everywhere else in the nation. So the small group of people and we try to highlight who they were, um, pull together to save people and get this, to fight the, the pandemic, uh, the epidemic, and try to help people and save their lives. It was kind of a moving story that, that they could take people to the hospital for driving miles, um, whether it was in Williamsport or in Harrisburg, What they had to do to help people and find those people that were isolated and help.
1: And Barry, what do you remember about that time?
0: Yeah, it was a really difficult time for our community. Um, You know, people were very scared. Um, They didn't really uh, know too much about the disease at that point. And so, um, you know, Gary Norton, for example, was a person who was one of the more high profile. Members of our community in in Central PA. He had um, uh, been living up in Williamsport. He helped start organizations up there, and he'd moved to Harrisburg um, before he got sick. And um, he uh, helped uh, start MCC, the Metropolitan Community Church, in Harrisburg, uh, which which was a gay congregation, predominantly gay congregation. Um, And um, he worked on a number of other things in the community and and people recognized him and knew him, and when he got sick, um, it was a uh, scary eye-opening thing for our community. Uh, So a lot of people um, stepped up at that point and uh, volunteered uh, for SCAN, to start SCAN, as Bill mentioned. Um, Other cities, other small cities around Harrisburg uh, started organizations as well again, mostly volunteer, mostly through a buddy system, people teaming up with someone who is sick, providing them with a lot of care. Um, And uh, yeah, it was an emotional time. That's why, you
2: know, I think that that chapter is important. And I think I realized that when I went back to school to get my master's and, you know, I was an older student, obviously. And there were some younger, obviously a lot of younger students there. And younger gay students, and I was kind of—I I, I shouldn't have been—but I was amazed that some of these younger gay students, you know, that didn't—they didn't live through the AIDS crisis. They had no idea what had gone on. And you know, I'm sitting there. I had lived through it. I watched my friends die. Um, and it's kind of like, how are you going to get these kids to understand what, what, what it was like? other than watching a movie like Philadelphia, you know, or reading a book like this, or, you know, you gotta direct them because they have no idea what went on or what it was like. You know, they're living in an age of prep where they can take something, and AIDS is no longer the threat that it was. So the world's changed, and you need books like this to kind of talk about what it was like.
0: I'd also like to mention the fact that with the uh, the women's community really uh, stepped up at that point too to help out um, because so many gay men were, were uh, passing away or were sick um, and uh, that was a time when they really got involved and volunteered um, uh, to help out.
1: We only have about a minute left and but Barry, let me ask you the last question. Is, is the battle won or is there more to be done?
0: No, there's definitely more to be done. Um, I think we can see from the current um, atmosphere and, and current political situation that we're in, that um, things are, are always in danger. You never know that uh, our rights are going to be secured and guaranteed. Um, you can't take anything for granted. These things can be taken away just as easily as they were granted. So um, it's it's very important that we stay in the uh, fight and in the effort to, uh, to work towards uh, total equality for all people.
1: That's going to have to be the last word. We are out of time. We've been speaking with William Burton and Barry Loveland. They are the authors of this book, Out in Central Pennsylvania, The History of an LGBTQ Community. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks you. so much for having us.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.